just because you can explain it to them doesn't necessarily mean they understand it or care about it either. Welcome to How I Fixed It, a podcast where we cut the noise and learn step-by-step strategies entrepreneurs use to grow. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. David Mead, the co-founder of Varigent Biosciences. Dr. Mead has decades of experience working on biotechnology, patenting a method called TA cloning, which has sold over a billion dollars. And now he's working on another company that could help discover drugs from nature 10 times more quickly. A word of warning though, this podcast gets very technical, so please see the description for a glossary I put together. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today, and I'm very excited to hear literally about your decades of experience here. But first of all, I'd just love to hear a little bit about who you are and an introduction to your story and working in this industry. Sure. I am David Mead, uh, CEO and founder of a company called Vergen Biosciences. And before that, I had founded another company called Lucigen that was sold three almost four years ago now. And I have always been a tool builder. I got my PhD in physiology starting in 1980 and finished in 86. And I was fortunate enough to join a lab that was um, using molecular biology tools to try to clone the parathyroid hormone gene so that it could be sequenced. And I came into the lab right as that was finishing off And we had the cDNA of the parathyroid hormone uh, gene as a clone. And uh, the project that I chose to work on as a grad student was trying to figure out the structure function of signal sequences. And that was all the rage back then. And so we had uh, in vitro methods for transcribing and translating DNA and in vitro methods for studying signal sequences using uh, microsomal membrane preparations but we really didn't have a good way to make mutants. And right as I started my uh, PhD, there was this technology uh, that had been developed about making a chimeric phage in a plasmid. If you took a tiny piece of that phage out and put it in the plasmid and then you infected it with the phage, you could get the double-stranded plasmid out of single-stranded DNA. And it was like a miracle because at that time, the only, this was before PCR, and site-direct immunogenesis, none of that. Uh, oligos were just starting to be used a lot. So at that time, it was really the only way to generate mutants on DNA is you had to convert it to single stranded. So I uh, realized, oh, this blue-white assay, if I stick this uh, tiny 514 base pair intergenic origin of replication from there, I could make a blue-white single-stranded DNA phage mid. Turned out to be the linchpin for us to be able to make lots of mutants in the signal peptide and figure out what the important amino acid sequences were, whether there were charges at the beginning or the end, or you know, lots of hydrophobic things in the middle. This is all old news. It was kind of at the dawn of that period. And, and I was enamored with tool building. I, I loved it then, and I still love it. I haven't used my PhD for anything. I've been a molecular biologist my whole career after that. And I've always chased these things that would allow you to make tools to do things better, faster, easier, cheaper, and make money. But it was always the thrill of the building a tool that would enable you to do something that you couldn't do before was, was what was so fun. And then shortly after I graduated, I did a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin. And 
there was all this information about how you couldn't clone PCR amplicons out there. So you had to amplify it with a, an oligo, double-stranded oligo, so you could cut it with a restriction enzyme. And I was like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. And I was a voracious reader of the literature. And I noticed this uh, little paper over, uh, over here on left field that said, for whatever reason, enzymes that were not proofreaders would spontaneously add a single A to the ends of the uh, amplicons, whether you liked it or not. So the ends are not blunt. They have an A-tail, a three-prime A-tail at both ends. I thought, well, why don't we just make a T-tail overhang vector? And, and that was the genesis for TA cloning. This was right at the beginning of my career. I didn't have a crystal ball or a clue what you know anything was worth, but sold, patented it, and sold the rights to a, a little company called Invitrogen that went on to become Thermal Fisher. And that product has sold almost a billion dollars worth of commerce here over the last 25 years. And it was about five years into that thing taking off that I realized, wow, that was a great success. And maybe I can do it again. And, and in reality, I, yes, that was a good excuse to start a company, but not a business person, not the best scientist, just a good idea person. And it took uh, 20 years for uh, Lucigen to build up to this money-making thing that was worth something. And um, so I never had a, a, a grand slam hit again like that, but that's how things work out. You know, you just chase things that seem interesting or worthwhile, and sometimes they work out, and sometimes they're not as big as you think, and sometimes you're surprised, and they're spectacularly successful, and a lot of times in science, most things don't work, so it's a really big mixed bag of small successes sometimes lead up to bigger successes, but it's all about, um, you know, hard work and not being afraid of failing, and if it, things don't work, figuring out when to stop working on them and go do something else. That's, that's the hardest lesson I've actually learned. Yeah, I think it'll be phenomenal to dissect that journey bit by bit. But just before that, I know I can't ask you to define all these terms. So look down in the description if you're listening. I'll have uh, defined all of these afterwards. But if you could just explain one thing, could you explain what mutant genes are and why they are important? You know... There's 20 amino acids and proteins. Why do they choose an alanine instead of a, you know, methionine or whatever? And the only way to really rationally understand this, how a structure imparts a function on a protein is to have variants that will work better or worse or, you know, make it or break it. So by doing site-specific oligonucleotide mutagenesis, you can change the coding of the DNA to any amino acid codon. So you can test all 20 amino acids at a given position if you wanted to, for example. So it's only by understanding what the rules of amino acids uh, play in a context of a bigger structure that you can uh, help deduce a function and its associated structure. Mm. So if I could say that back to you, the key idea here is we want to just change DNA in just slight ways so that we're pitting slightly different versions at each other and figuring out, okay, what is the uh, result or effect of the DNA that has changed? Uh, so DNA has only got four bases and it encodes all 20 amino acids using a triplet codon. Uh, so there's 64 possible codons, three of which are stopped 
stop codons and the others encode the other 20 amino acids. So by changing the codon sequence in a DNA from an alanine to a proline, you can study whether that change is relevant for the catalysis of a protein or its folding or its binding or whatever attribute you're looking for. All right. But yeah, as I said, I'd love to now dissect your journey and its different steps. And let's start off at the academic phase where it sounded like you didn't even know that you were going to be this excited by molecular biology, but you found the work to be really exciting. Oh, I knew right away. As soon as I heard the uh, seminar by my professor, Brian Byron Kemper, talking about uh, all these things you could do in a test tube, micro centrifuge tube, I was blown away by the precision with which you can manipulate the molecules of life. I was in love uh, right away with the whole concept of you could start making changes in DNA that makes changes in proteins that you could study those effects at will now, instead of hoping for random mutations that might shed light on something. And it sounded like you really enjoyed working with these specific machinery and tools that you use it? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So when you were working within the academic environment, what would you say are some stories or examples of the most impactful research or work that you could put out? The story that I remember the most was when I was getting ready to graduate, I didn't even think I necessarily wanted to do a postdoc. I knew I was a tool builder and I wanted to go into industry. And so many of my friends poo-pooed that, said I would never go anywhere. And it was a big mistake that I'd regret for the rest of my life. And, you know, listen to that a little bit, but I followed that path. I did look at a couple of postdoc opportunities and decided, nope, that was meant to be in industrial biotech and have not regretted that choice ever since. Career path at the time was you, you either went into academia or you didn't amount to much. It's kind of the mentality that, I mean, if you look at what's going on now, the you can do um, just as good a science and uh, industry as you can do in academia. And some of the most recent examples of that are the COVID uh, vaccine. It was uh, a huge effort by industry to invent, develop, and uh, bring that to market in a record time. Yeah, it really is expanding a lot, but it sounds like going against the expectations and just right. following what interested you, like that's what lets you get in ahead of the curve. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, there's certain things that are hard to do in academia that are easier to do in industry. The the whole uh, next-gen sequencing technology was all developed, yes, on the foundations of academic work and ideas, but putting the combination of all the ingredients together in a new way that made massively parallel sequencing work was really best uh, done in an industrial setting. Yeah. And let's actually dig into that. So when you were in just the academic environment, what are the big challenges that came up or any lessons that you had to learn the hard way? Uh, Finding enough lab space was always a challenge. And, you know, making sure you really understood what you were doing was the right thing to do and how to do it. Uh, You know, this is all, that's why they call it research because you do it over and over again. But as a novice and a beginner, you're 10 times more unsure of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So having a good mentor and uh, colleagues around that help and support you is, is critical for anybody's success. 
yeah, I can imagine because <laughs> I, I have no idea what I would be doing. So then after afterwards, you moved on to working in the industry and eventually licensing out your technology. Could you tell me a little bit about what are the first things that kind of happened that led you to the big idea? Well, it's not so much that it led me to a big idea. I think it's uh, being aware of problems in, in an area that you're working in and reading widely enough to see what other potential solutions might be and then bringing those uh, two different things from different parts of science together in a new way that creates most of the things that are um, developed these days. It's synergies across fields and literature that is what drives a lot of innovation. Yeah, and when you were doing that literature review and also experimenting with uh, the new technologies, what would you say was the most motivating part of that phase of your career? I can't believe you can do this. I can't believe this works. This is unbelievable. Nobody's ever done this before. Maybe this will be important. Wahoo. <laughs> it was like the new experiments that you keep putting out, putting things together. That really was a hugely motivating factor. Absolutely. And was it easier to rapidly iterate? I would imagine maybe funding was easier in that environment. Well, when we started raising money for Lucigen, it was in the early days of biotech here in the Madison, Wisconsin area. There weren't very many failures at that point. So we were successful at raising money and we were also making money as we went along. So that made it a lot easier. When we exited it three years ago, I was just stunned at how many investors told me that this was the only investment that made money. And it was a huge relief and sigh of gratitude to realize that, you know, we had made it in spite of the odds. It's, you know, there's no guarantees that uh, and, and, I, and, and any given idea is going to work out. I mean, it takes more than just an idea. It takes the right team, the right uh business uh, strategy and, and business people can screw things up as bad as, as scientists too. So um, there's a lot of ways of failing. That's for sure. Could you give me like an examples about what you mean there? Well, uh, I'll give you my own personal example. We were really successful at getting SBIR grants at Lucigen and we developed a lot of what academics would say, cool ideas and technologies, but uh, there wasn't, a good market for them or necessarily a market that came out of a lot of those things. So that's a, a, an example of, yeah, you can invent things, but if they're not put into the right commercial configuration or they're not marketed or packaged correctly, that there's ways of those things going sideways and not being successful. So it turns out that a lot of the things that we invented were interesting and impactful from an academic standpoint, but not as successful as a commercial standpoint. So what did you have to do then to, you know, better find out what does the industry actually need right now? Talk to customers and ask them a lot of questions and talk to like a hundred of them, see if they really want it or, or need it. What questions did you ask? Well, it depends on what you're trying to develop. You know, if it's a new polymerase for sequencing or amplification, better understand what they're doing now and what doesn't work and what their pain points are. And if you've got a new activity that helps solve that problem, just because you can explain it to them doesn't necessarily mean they understand it or care about it either. So there's a lot of complicated things that go on if you're going to have a successful product development. And if I had to guess, most companies are in the same boat. You know, 90% of the things you develop either are small successes or, or 
don't go anywhere and go away. And only, you know, 10% make it. And, and of those, only 1% turn out to be real decent money winners. And so it sounds like in your journey, the key idea was you had to churn out a lot of technologies. And when things didn't work, you had to iterate to figure out, okay, we need to drastically rethink what we're doing and actually go out and talk to the customers. But over time, a lot of that later, then you eventually hit upon the big billion-dollar technology? Well, there, here's one example of a, of a really good idea that didn't pan out because the molecule wasn't really fully enabled. Uh, this is an idea of a colleague of mine, Tom Schoenfeld. He had worked at another company that had found a DNA polymerase out of a bacteriophage that grew on hosts from boiling hot springs. And he knew they were in there, so he, he figured out, well, instead of trying to cultivate thermophiles, which is very challenging and even harder to cultivate the viruses from thermophiles. Let's go see if we can metagenomically find novel thermal stable hot spring viral DNA polymerases from boiling hot springs. And we spent uh, a number of trips going to Yellowstone, filtering boiling hot water and separating out the bacteria from the viruses and then cloning the, the viruses and then finding the polymerases. And one of the polymerases that was found was this weird little small thing that would actually do PCR and RT-PCR, which means reverse transcription PCR. So it was a, not only DNA polymerase, but a, a DNA polymerase that would copy RNA. And that would be really valuable to have what would appear to be one enzyme with multiple activities instead of multiple enzymes. So we spent time trying to make it into an RT-PCR product and work, but not quite good enough to be robust. And what, where we failed was mutating it or improving it, evolving it to get it to be um, the be-all that ends all. So it caught a lot of attention, but it wasn't quite good enough to be a, a blockbuster market product. Mark. Mm. So then moving on to the last part of your journey, what made you want to keep on going after you licensed out a big technology? You could have just stopped there. Well, we sold Lucigen four years ago for $70 million. I had a decent stakeholder on that. So I used those proceeds to start Verigen. And when we started Verigen, there were no good tools for manipulating big DNA. And there are certain big DNA things that are very, very valuable. They're called natural products. And I don't mean herbal remedies. I mean, therapeutic drugs like penicillin, things like that. And what's so stunning about those small molecule natural products is that they often take a lot of DNA to make those molecules. And these are all in GC-rich organisms. So PCR does not work. And there were no really good tools for manipulating it. And CRISPR-Cas9 had, had come be commercially available a few years before then. And people were starting to show you could use CRISPR-Cas9 to in vivo modify these pathways a little bit slowly, one, one change at a time. And what we pioneered was the ability to use CRISPR-Cas9, which is the ultimate restriction in the nuclease. It's got 20 base pair specificity. So we could cut DNA out of a genome anywhere we wanted. So we used that ultimate specificity to cut out the genome and capture it and clone it. And then we developed a dual inducible promoter technology to express the pathway so that literally in two months, we can de-orphan a natural product and its uh, pathway and its metabolite. And we've got a publication to show that. So that's record speed for, for sorting out these really complicated, difficult things. And what's 
even more important. It's not that you can't do this other ways, but they typically take months and months and years. And this technology is days and weeks. So it accelerates the ability to manipulate these pathways. And we can also use the same technology in vitro to rapidly change and modify the pathway to put in uh, better genetic elements for controlling it or expressing it or uh, knocking out the negative regulatory things and that. So our uh, mission now is instead of trying to discover drugs, we thought we were going to be a drug discovery company, but it takes decades and billions of dollars to get there. We realize that there's lots of drugs that are very, very difficult to manufacture. They're hard to get a hold of those biological resources. We have the tools to turn those biological resources on now and dramatically drop the cost of goods. And at the same time, because we have the entire pathway cloned, we can get new structure activity relationship uh, takeoff points by manipulating the backbone and the proteins and the regulatory pathway. So just starting to get traction on this idea and we're getting some really interesting uh, strategic folks coming and figuring out how to take advantage of this as well as uh, some pharmas that are realizing, oh my gosh, we can get there in a few months to half a year instead of a few years to a half a decade. So it's exciting times right now. We're at a really nice inflection point. Yeah, I can imagine. I've, I've been hearing more and more about issues with bioprospecting and searching for these molecules. So it sounds like it's still that same desire you had all those decades ago. Like, what are the problems out there and what new things can I recombine to bring to the table? That's, that's the fun of it all, yeah. I mean, and, and the fact that we could save lives with more affordable medicines or variant medicines that are less toxic uh, is obviously a real huge upside. But tool building for helping patients, uh, saving lives and making money is a really nice combination of motivators. Yeah, it definitely is a very cool company. To wrap up, what are some milestones people can expect from Verigen in the future? Well, we're raising a 10 million Series A round, and if we uh, achieve that goal, you can expect us to s expect to see us come out with a really potent anti-COVID uh, compound here in a couple of years, and a much more affordable uh, cyclosporin, and some new antimicrobial uh, crop pathogen compounds. So we've got a really nice pipeline that's diverse and potent, and and if we're right, worth a lot of money as well. And, and I mean, a lot of money. People like to laugh at me when I say that, but if we're right, this is scalable to a billion dollar company. We're actually merging with another little uh, company that's founded by uh, academics and coming out with a new brand called Terra Bioworks. And it'll be more of this uh, next generation therapeutic drug manufacturing. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. You don't find someone with this much expertise every day so i appreciate getting to hear about the unique stories that you have that 95 percent of other people wouldn't thank you for uh inviting me <laughs>